welcome back to Wonder Women, a podcast that tells the stories of inspirational women in history you may never have heard of. I'm Dominique Roberts. And I'm Megan ArmConnect. This episode is actually going to be a little different because instead of discussing one really cool woman that will inspire you, I'm going to be discussing many. And that's because today's episode is going to focus on women in early Hollywood and how, as surprising as this may seem to some of you, women were actually extremely powerful in the early days of film. Wow, that is surprising. Yeah, I know. And this is actually what I wrote my dissertation on in Oxford, if you remember. I know that you yeah. you read it. So mm-hmm. it's a topic I'm particularly passionate about. But I also think that this episode is really interesting in the context of this particular moment in time because in light of the Me Too movement, there's been a lot of recent scrutiny on gender politics in Hollywood and the power that women have and mostly the power that women don't have. And, you know, I think that Hollywood is commonly perceived to be one of those industries, probably a bit like tech, that suffers from a gender imbalance at the extreme. I think it's thought to be controlled mostly by men, and there is a lot of truth to that. Since the first Academy Awards in 1929, only five women have ever been nominated for Best Director. One of them was Greta Gerwin, who was just nominated for Lady Bird this past year the fourth nominee and the only woman to ever receive an Oscar for Best Director in the 89-year history of the Academy Awards was Catherine Bigelow, who won for The Hurt Locker in 2010. Oh, wow. This past year, Rachel Morrison became the first woman ever nominated for the Academy Award for Cinematography, which to me is just shocking. I mean, no one had even been nominated before 2018. Um, And just to bore you with a few statistics before we jump in. Um, According to the Motion Picture Association of America, despite the fact that women comprise 50% of moviegoers of the top 100 grossing films in 2017, women represented only 8% of directors, 10% of writers, 2% of cinematographers, 24% of producers, 14% of editors. I mean, that's not even close to half. That's not even a quarter in some of those categories. Um, And USC Journalism School found that number to be even lower. They found only 4% of films were directed by women, which would mean that every out of every 22 guys hired to be a director, only one woman was hired. So as we can see, there's a huge imbalance here. Yeah, absolutely. But this wasn't always the case. In fact, film historians think the first ever narrative film director was a woman, Alice Guy Blachet, who made a film in 1896. Also, the highest paid director in film before 1920 was also a woman, Lois Weber. She began directing in 1913, and by 1916, she earned more than any other male director, which is pretty surprising if you look at some of the gender pay discrepancies in Hollywood today. She then went on to found her own production company and made nearly 400 films in her lifetime. Can I ask, were there a lot of female directors also at this time, not just her? Um, yes, there were. Um, there were about there were over, there were about 26 known directors at this time but which i know seems like a small number but you have to keep in mind this is the very beginning yeah. of the film industry yeah. the industry was so small there weren't that many people in general mm-hmm. and at the turn of the century when we're talking about so that's you know the late 1800s early 1900s there were as many female screenwriters oh, okay. as men so if you go to the scripts in the Library of Congress, women wrote half of the films copyrighted between 1911 and 1925, which um, if we're also talking about, you know, this is 
a time when women don't even have the vote yet. So mm-hmm. to learn that they're writing half of the films in Hollywood and half of the films that are in the Library of Congress from that time were written by women, I, I just think it's it's really shocking. Yeah, that's incredible. But women weren't just writers and directors. So before the development of the film unions in the 1930s, um, because, you know, film unions wouldn't allow female members... Women were essential in front of and behind the cameras, actors, directors, producers, editors, publicists, location managers, camera ops, I mean, you name it, they were there. Um, And I think partly this is because the early film industry lacked the barriers that prevented women from breaking into other more respectable industries, quote-unquote respectable industries, you know, we're talking about the the early um, 1900s, right? And so women found it an easier source of employment than in more traditional fields, And so by 1909, women, and I have to um, caveat this with, we are only talking about white women because this is the Mm -hmm. early 20th century. Women were represented in nearly all of the production roles. Um, But I think probably even more importantly than the fact that they held these specific jobs was that women held executive positions across Hollywood and they managed their own companies. And I've been seeing, you know, Reese Witherspoon has recently got a lot of really well-deserved attention for creating the media company Hello Sunshine and its subsidiary Pacific Standard, which um, I don't know if you've seen any of these films, but they produced Wild, Big Little Lies, both projects Reese was in. Yeah, I've heard Um, about them. And it produced Gone Girl, all incredibly successful projects, award-winning, really critically acclaimed. And the message of her company on its website and in the press is that, you know, quote, women deserve better, and that the company is about shining a light on female authorship and agency. And this might seem like a groundbreaking, you know, breath of fresh air in today's media climate, and it certainly is in when when we're looking at the past few decades of Hollywood's history. But actually, in the early days of Hollywood, it was really common for women to own and run their own film companies and to mm-hmm. actually make a profit. And you know, we're talking, you know, many f- silent film, many female silent film stars started their own uh, own companies, and they were really successful. So why why do you think they were able to have so much success at that time? Well, so part of it was when film was still black and white and silent, it didn't take as much money to make a film. And also the major studios hadn't yet bought up all the independent distribution chains and movie theaters, so it was still possible for women without a lot mm-hmm. of independent wealth and without major Wall Street backers to make a film and to achieve commercial and financial success. Okay. Some examples, you know, are the Liberty Feature Film Company, which was founded in 1915, was owned and managed entirely by women. And the same year, the American Woman Film Company was founded and it was financed entirely by wealthy women from L.A. Wow, so it really was a woman-run enterprise. uh, 100%. Mm -hmm. The first ever director I mentioned, Alice Guy Blachet, she went on to own her own studio and she produced nearly 300 silent films in her career. Wow. These are really prolific careers. Yeah. She went on to serve as a director for a major film company, which, as I said before, it's it's so notable if we consider the context of the early 20th century, because this is a time when, you know, women weren't even allowed to vote, much less serve as a director for a commercially profitable company. Yeah. But I think one of the key things to discuss is that, you know, when women held power, it affected more than just employment demographics. Female representation in executive Hollywood influenced content. So before 1920, women used film to directly address social problems like the right to vote, access to birth Mm. control, 
And part of this is because studios used to make about four films a month, so it was possible to make a controversial film because the risk was offset by the other films that the studio was producing in the same month. Okay. So at any one time, not as much money was, was really at stake. But then as film transitioned from short to feature length and from silent to sound, the budgets became bigger and the cost of producing a feature length film with sound was just... It was just too much money to risk on a potentially controversial social problem film. So, of course, nowadays there are many thought-provoking and impactful films. I'm not, you know, saying there aren't. But it is very rare that we see a major blockbuster film that specifically aims to address a single political or social issue. You know, we see studios invest their money into things like Star Wars, Transformers, Jurassic Park, these things that are action-packed and appealing to wide audiences, or even comedies, but, you know, things that are relatively safe. Yeah, that is really interesting because... With this, um, this crossroads of having more technology but also more money, suddenly it seems like men started to probably flood the field a lot more and push mm-hmm. women out mm-hmm. of an enterprise, a career that was more available to them in the 19-teens and 1920s. Yeah, uh, that is exactly what happened, Megan. You know, you, what happened was this advancing technology and the increasing popularity of film, because when mm-hmm. it started, you know, not everyone went to the movies, they yeah. didn't even know what they were. Mm-hmm. Increasing popularity of film meant that bigger budgets and the opportunity for bigger profits started to become available, and these business type tycoons see this and they become involved in this aggressive and really rapid expansion of the film industry and at the same time we're seeing the technology progress from silent to sound short to feature length you know black and white to color eventually and the result of all this progress was that it just took so much more money to make a film interesting Uh when we're talking about 1912 when it's short and silent black and white companies spent around 500 dollars per film by the early 1920s, you know, not, not even a decade later, feature films cost $200,000 per film to make, and epics cost closer to $1 million. So that changes what you're going to be producing. And, and who's mm-hmm. going to be producing it, for yeah. sure. Because filmmakers start turning to Wall Street to receive financial backing mm-hmm. for these really expensive new projects. And then in turn, Wall Street requires that their board members sit on the studio boards. And so... Within a few short years, we all of a sudden see MGM's board includes the president of Chase Bank, Mm. DuPont, United Cigars, Central Union Trust. The Lowe's board of directors includes the head of General Motors and the president of Liberty International Bank. And so by the end of the 1920s, there are major financial institutions and industrial corporations on every single film studio board. Ah, and yeah, that's a game changer. It was a game changer. And also little things like the actual physical weight of the equipment as film developed influenced this as well because it started getting heavier and heavier. And so you start to see this trend of, of men operating the camera and being behind the camera, therefore making the artistic de- decisions. And so it was actually women that were in post-production editing roles that were most able to maintain their careers through the transition to sound. So what does that really mean, like the post-production editing roles? Like what do those look like? And also if there were women that were able to keep their careers during this transition, like why don't we really hear about them? Um, That's a good question. I don't know. But when we talk about post-production, we talk about actually um, physically editing the film, you know, which takes go in and out and how the film is kind of put together and, and edited for the final product. And I think nowadays when we when we think of post-production because so much is done with visual effects we kind of have this image of 
you know, a bunch of guys in a dark room with giant screens doing all these really complicated VX effects, you know, for Transformers or whatever. We we don't really picture a lot of, of women editors, but that wasn't the case um, in early Hollywood. So an example of one really successful woman that definitely maintained her career, this woman, Margaret Booth, she began editing in 1915. So this is a time when film was actually still run by hand in front of a light bulb, you know, and physically cut with scissors and then Mm -hmm. glued together to edit a film together, which is why if you're watching really, really old film, you see those lines across because they've glued Uh the film together. Okay. Um, She later went on to become the supervising editor for all of MGM, and she was actually the editor for MGM's first ever sound film. That's a big deal. It's a really big deal. It's something no one knows and no one talks about, and, and it's just... And kind of an unknown fact, you know, that was a really big deal. And Jim's first ever sound film was a huge financial investment and and profit for them. And it was edited by a woman, which is yeah, which it's is like really very cool. singing in the rain esque. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah but... definitely. Another really cool woman, this woman named Maud Adams, she collaborated for 10 years from 1905 to 1915 with a lighting engineer to develop a stronger and more portable incandescent electrical light to be used in film. So, you know, even the basics of film equipment, you know, in part was invented by a woman and it's something no one knows about, you never hear about that. She later went on to work with General Electric and Kodak to successfully manufacture the world's largest incandescent lamp, but she received no money from the GE patent and was omitted from the GE archival records. So actually, she was just kind of erased from that history, even though that was, that was in, a part, big deal there. in part her yeah. invention. So was it just female editors that made it to the end of this transition between silent film and sound films? Well, by the mid-20s, you know, most women found themselves unemployed because labor unions were strictly against female members and without the help of union, women were able to be legally and easily forced out of the industry. There were a few that did. Uh, Dorothy Arzner was actually the only female editor and director who moved from silent to sound film within the studio system. And between 1927 and 1943, she made 17 feature-length films. Another example is writer Anita Luce wrote over 100 scripts for major production companies between 1912 and 1915 when film was still silent, and she did continue writing after the invention of sound film. Okay. Unfortunately, most of the women who had been really successful and had really prolific careers during the early film industry found themselves completely unable to find work. People who had you know, written over 300 films and been the lead actresses in the biggest film companies they just they couldn't find work anymore after this transition and I think one quote that really represents what was happening um, is this quote by a woman Jean Gontier who said in a 1924 interview to a magazine quote in addition to playing the principal parts I also wrote with the exception of a bare half dozen every one of the 500 or so pictures in which I appeared I picked the locations supervised sets and co-directed end quote so you know, this is a woman who literally did it all, and she made over 300 films in her career. And then within just a few short years, the entire industry changed, and all of her hard work is forgotten, yeah, and she was just booted out. Yeah, that's powerful, where she's just, she has so much control over her, her production and, what, and the, the content she wants to share and to put out and so much control over her career, and then everything was just taken away. 
Yeah, and it happened really quickly. In a few short years, we see these women who have, you know, really amazing careers and a lot of influence, a lot of power, are just really easily and quickly replaced by these Wall Street men who now sit on the studio boards and now call the Mm -hmm. shots and now Mm -hmm. decide who's staffed on what and what gets produced. So... Not to end on a, a sad note. Yeah, so it's what, kind of like a declension. <laughs> so narrative. what's the what's the takeaway from all this? Well, firstly, I personally think it's it's respectful to these amazing and pioneering mm-hmm. women to reinsert them into sort of the narrative of the film industry where possible, but also to remind listeners that Hollywood as we know it could have never existed without the hard work and the dedication of a lot of really cool women. And the film industry may seem subject to a lot of restrictive gender politics right now, but it wasn't always the case, and it definitely doesn't have to stay that way in future. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest takeaway from all of this is that the true Hollywood legacy is not that of a male-dominated industry, but is rather, without a doubt, one of really talented men and women working together to push boundaries and, you know, truly change our world. Yeah, wow. Those those stories are both really inspiring, but also kind of disheartening to kind of see what it had been, but then the changes as well, that and to like kind of lead where we are now. I think in a lot of ways it is, but I also think that these stories really just bring such a a different perspective to how we view Hollywood mm-hmm. and really paints a much more rounded picture of of what the film industry is and where it came from and where it has the potential to go. Because yeah. it was it was yeah. based on these stories and the work of these women and men. And so if it came from this, it definitely has the potential to be that sort of integrated and equal opportunity industry again. Yeah, kind of that's not the entire picture is not what we see right now. But there is like a longer arc and it, and it ebbs and flows. And, you know, I would hope that it would also be inspiring for women who are currently in film now who may find themselves the only woman in the room a lot of times mm. to to know that this was the background and to know that there is this long-standing tradition in this history of really powerful women in film yeah. so I think that's to me this has always been a really interesting topic and I hope you all listening thought so too and I hope it you know maybe changes your perspective a bit on the film industry yeah, no, when I read your dissertation at Oxford, it certainly changed mine a lot and kind of changed my view of what, of this, the trajectory and what was possible. So. Oh, good. The only person who ever read it liked it. <laughs> you know, that's something, though, right? <laughs> okay. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Wonder Women is edited by Dominique Roberts with original music by Matthew Gregory.